Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. One of our high points at Davos was a discussion with the Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland about the future of the island nation. That future comes forward today as Prime Minister May will travel to Belfast, an extraordinary moment for Northern Ireland. Arlene Foster, I believe, out with comments here uh, through the morning, and then we'll hear from Prime Minister May this afternoon. Richard Haas to join us in the next hour. Now, Gene Frieda with us with PIMCO, and Therese Raphael will join from Bloomberg Opinion here uh, in a moment. Gene, it's extremely important. It is about the EU common market. Can the European common market actually move forward without the United Kingdom? Well, I think it's, it's, it's going to have to get used to the idea. Um, yeah, without question, it can move on. I think it's just going to be a, a worse outcome for both sides. Um, in the end, you know, um, we think, you know, it doesn't really change the growth outlook all that much unless you end up with a no-deal Brexit, which right. we don't really see much appetite for on either side. So I think from that perspective, yeah, they can move on. Um, the precedents that are set will obviously be important, you know, as other political disputes come to the fore in the future. Um, and so from that perspective, it's not likely to be, you know, an easy divorce. I, I mean, and we'll talk to Ambassador Haas about this later, Gene, but it really harkens back to the Good Friday Agreement of, I believe, 1999. Shouldn't the EU give on this? I mean, if this is an intractable three, four, five hundred year issue, isn't it the prerogative of continental Europe to give way to some collegial solution, as we saw with the Good Friday Agreement? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that, you know, this deal that's been negotiated by this government is a pretty good deal for the, from the European perspective. It's not such a great deal from the UK's perspective. So in order to lock that deal in, one would think it makes some sense to get some degree of compromise. Yeah. Now, my guess is that both sides need to kind of look a little bit over the abyss before they come to that sort of uh, willingness to compromise. Um, it needs to be clear that there is an alternative that's much worse which is why you have to compromise your beliefs a bit. Mm. And still we're struggling to find this compromise. Therese, let me bring you in here. You've written extensively on this. Of course, we've got Theresa May uh, in Northern Ireland over the next couple of days. And time running out, is there any chance whatsoever that we could get any changes at the margins to this backstop agreement? Well, we keep hearing from various European uh, quarters, from the UK quarters, even from Germany, that people need to be creative, they need yeah. to find solutions. And, you know, I, I agree very much with Tom when he says, you know, can't they find something now? It's in everybody's interest. But when you get down to the specifics of how do you push through, you know, do you time limit the backstop? Well, then, you know, what good is an insurance policy that runs out? Out. Do you accept unilateral withdrawal? That is clearly unacceptable from the Irish perspective. And there we run into a, to a difficulty in specifying exactly what needs to happen. One uh, possibility that I think the EU is really pushing is finding a solution in the political declaration, so not in the withdrawal agreement, but finding some kind of legalese that links the two. Um, but the hardline Brexiters in Theresa May's party are absolutely adamant that that will not be good enough. And that leads 
leaves the question of whether she can peel off enough Labour MPs to find support for whatever solution she does strike with the EU. And we have to think that they will find something for her to bring back to Parliament on the 14th. Yeah, and it certainly seems that that's what markets are hoping for. If you look at cable volatility, that's been coming down. We've just heard from Jean Frieda of PIMCO that a no deal is not the most likely scenario. And I've heard that also from JP Morgan Asset Management earlier this morning. But actually, is there more of a chance of no deal than markets are pricing for at the moment? Yeah, I mean, they're the experts. I've, you know, always wondered whether markets are, you know, rather too optimistic because that is maybe in the nature of, uh, you know, of markets to see opportunity. Um, you know, there's every possibility that no deal happens almost by accident. And if you look, we had yeah. a, a piece last week on game theory and how if you try to apply game theory to these scenarios, you get, you know, this very scary outcome that, uh, uh, you know, might be that, you know, each side is playing a rather different game and it could end up with no deal. So I think it's just, you know, too early to, to write that off. And it's also a very scary place when you're saying, well, at the very last minute, you know, one minute to midnight, they'll do something. But nobody can say what that something is. Mm. Teresa, I want to show a chart here. This is the Republic of Ireland, nominal GDP, their animal spirit in Northern Ireland as well. The Republic of Ireland in green uh, moving up here, normalized back to the year 2000. 19 years ago with Northern Ireland underperforming. The math's a little squishy, but um, it gives you a picture of the relative growth rates of the two regions. Therese Raphael, if we get a no deal by accident, what are the actual outcomes to the Republic of Ireland? Well, the consensus is that Ireland hurts big time, that next to the UK, Ireland suffers more than any other country. Now, there's some who said, um, there was actually a report out today, that said, well, actually, maybe the, the, the downside for Ireland isn't quite so big as everyone is saying, because um, the UK may end up uh, with a much looser fiscal policy. The Bank of England could end up lowering rates. But, um, you know, most economists you speak to in Ireland will say, you know, look, the, the country is so intertwined with the UK economy. The agriculture sector, you know, in particular, that um, it would not be enough to offset the financial services and tech jobs going to Ireland, that, that, that they would be very hurt. The interesting thing is that the Irish are not budging on the backstop. They see this as, you know, absolutely bigger than the economic uh, risk of a no-deal exit. Jean, let me bring this back to the markets. If we get past March 29th and we don't get that no deal scenario, is there going to be quite a severe repricing in the gilt markets, given how the Bank of England might react, especially with wage growth at its highest level since 2008? Yeah, we do think there would be some repricing. Um, but I think I, I wanted to say I agree with Teresa very mm. much. I mean, I think the reason why the market doesn't price a no deal is because it seems so irrational to both sides. It's a little bit like the, the referendum result itself. You didn't look get how the that big turned move. out. And you didn't get the big move in sterling until you actually had the result. I think this would be very similar. If you get a good outcome, I mean, I think it's right to say that there is some catch-up potential. But the longer it takes to get there, the more upside potential we're taking out because this uncertainty is leading businesses to move away from the U.K. Gene Frieda, thank you so much. Trish Raphael, wonderful to have you with us uh, this morning as well with Bloomberg Opinion. So the main event this evening, the president set to speak to a House chamber full of Democrats. Aides have promised a speech full of optimism, despite a continuing battle over a border wall and another government shutdown seemingly 
Lumic. Joining us now, a man whose resume and experience in government would take a whole segment on radio to read, the author of A World in Disarray, the President of the Council on Foreign Relations. It is Richard Haas. Good morning to Ambassador. Good morning. Help us frame the significance of this evening's address. You've helped to write a few of them. Um, How significant is this evening's? Well, the president only gets a few opportunities to speak to the country this way. There's a dramatic, almost theatrical setting. This one, though, look, comes against, it's the midpoint of the the Trump term. You just had the, the government shutdown. The economy's been been doing okay, but we also have a rising tide of political populism. So I don't think there's a lot of surprises. My guess is his supporters will find things in this that'll justify their support, and his critics will go on being critics. Is this an appropriate forum to announce some kind of policy change or some kind of intention to announce a policy change? Uh, I, I don't think you're going to see that. Uh, I think it's more to underscore the, the basics of your message, you make the case that you've had a successful presidency at the at the, at the midterm. This also takes place, if you will, at the opening moments of, of 2020. So I don't think you're going to see departures. The departures that we're going to see is typically him going off script. Cirilli, Kevin Cirilli's adamant. He's going to come out. He's going to read the speech and move on. Is it that basic? Is it that perfunctory, what we're going to see? Yeah, I would think the only moment he goes off script would be if he says something. There's then some slightly unexpected either laughing or booing from the Democrats in the House, and then he goes off script with some kind of impromptu repost to that. But I don't think you're going to have any sort of fun. This is not going to be suddenly he's going to start tweeting during the speech and go seriously off script. (laughs) To to Gideon Rockman today in the Financial Times of 30 years of Trump, I mean, forget about 30 years. Can you presume that there's enough? I love the phrase you have, Trumpism. Is there enough Trumpism where it's not eight, but 12 years? I mean, is there a follow on to a two to a two term Trump presidency. Well, there'll be elements of it, this will probably surprise you, or some in both parties, certainly in the Republican Party. I think that, you know, with people like the Vice President, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, well, we and others. We spoke with Buddy Carter of the First District right. of Georgia, who's on board. Donald Trump has remade the Republican Party. So at least for his immediate successor, there'll be a little bit of a who can be more of a Trump continuity person. I think in the Democrats, they'll portray themselves as very anti-Trump, but you'll see elements of similarity, certainly on trade. No one's going to be a free trade candidate, um, some elements of resentment against the wealthy. So I actually think you're going to see elements of Trumpism across the political spectrum. Uh, Richard, do you expect him to state his case for the latest foreign policy decisions? And do you see some kind of overarching strategy here from the White House and the State Department? I think foreign policy will not be a centerpiece of the speech, but yes, you'll see talk about North Korea, the, the progress the president will argue that we've made, the run-up to the, the second summit. I think you'll see some talk about the justification for getting out of the INF uh, agreement, maybe something about a call for democracy in, in Venezuela. I think on China trade, you'll see the uh, an argument. So yes, you're going to basically see an argument for he'll essentially claim success for his idea that we need to get allies and others to partner more, that we need to get out of bad trade deals. I think you're going to see essentially his effort to put the best possible face on what his foreign policy has been. Do you think actually these might provide some areas where we could actually hear some bipartisan support, some applause 
in, in the House on some of these areas? I think possibly on Venezuela. That's one of those issues that, that cuts across party lines because Democrats ought to be supporting democracy against this this thug and, and, and this tyrant. That That is one. But in many other areas, uh, you're not going to see it on the INF agreement. You may see some agreement on it getting tougher with China on, on trade. I think some of the biggest differences, though I doubt I'll even mention it, would be climate change. That will be one of those issues yeah. that will be, it'll be the silence that will be deafening rather than something he'll make a claim for. As you point out earlier in the conversation, though, typically some of these addresses can just end up in in a case of confirmation bias for the person watching the actual speech. The people that don't like the president aren't going to like him afterwards, and the people that like the president aren't going to dislike yeah, well, we him afterwards. That. We knew that, right? So what does it change, Tom? It's just, a, it's a, it, it, I mean, come on, this is just pomp and circumstance, right? This is a moment of off-Broadway theater for the United States. And exactly what you said, it'll reinforce the president. Okay. Look, he continues to play towards a base. That's important also because, you know, the other unspoken thing is obviously going to be the Mueller report. That's We don't know when it's going to be dropped, whether it's in weeks. Who's that going to bring that up? I mean, Nobody, that but, that's, but that's the unspoken thing. So again, for the president of the United States, it's important that there be no fissures right. in his base. Okay, what what is Stacey Abrams of, of, of Georgia going to do? This is an unusual I mean, we're supposed to hear from who? Senator Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, three or four other young worthies in the party. This is different, isn't it? It's absolutely different. And I think you're going to see hear some things about race, about opportunity, uh, immigration, uh, the need for greater economic uh, equality in the United States. You're going to hear that sort of a democratic agenda. Ambassador, go ahead, please. I was going to say we have a limited time with um, the ambassador. I actually wanted to get to Brexit. You were the U.S. envoy to Northern Ireland, um, a, a key part of the peace process and the United States' involvement in it through the late 90s. Ambassador, how disappointed are you in the UK government's approach to the UK's departure from the European Union, specifically around the issue at the Irish border? I think there's many reasons to be skeptical of Brexit, but this is on the short list. And the idea that the Prime Minister has now has opened up the possibility of going to amend the Good Friday Agreement for the sake of salvaging Brexit seems to me to have it have it backwards. Why wasn't this higher up on the list of priorities going into the vote? Well, not only wasn't it higher up because people didn't think through any of this. The, the whole Brexit debate was about the symbol of Brexit rather than the, the reality of it. But it's interesting. Her coalition part, partner... The Democratic Unionist Party, which is pro-Brexit, actually stands the most to lose from Brexit because Brexit would ignite, I believe, a real dynamic towards Irish unity, which is exactly what the DUP, the Democratic Unionists, uh, oppose. So it's one right. of those situations. It's actually one of those weird moments in politics where you have a major political party in Northern Ireland acting in ways that are totally inconsistent with its yeah. own purported self-interest. The literature is that over time there's simply more Catholics and there's a demographic shift in Northern Ireland. We're 20 years on from the Good Friday Agreement. Has that demographic shift occurred where the Unionists are ever more lonely? Well, the democratic shift is occurring. It's gradual. It hasn't reached a tipping point. But the Brexit debate could be the thing that puts it over the top sooner because you'll have this combination of a slightly larger Catholic pro-Irish unification demographic vote. Mm -hmm. On top of that now, you might begin to see young Protestants and those who don't particularly religiously affiliate say, I am going to choose 
unification with Ireland if the UK goes ahead and leave And that's within the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, that's a core issue, right? A, a border poll is a possibility at any point, and this could bring about a so-called border poll with both sides in the Republic of Ireland and oh. Northern Ireland. If you get a majority in both, then that, that oh. would set things in motion. Ambassador, thank you so much. We are absolutely thrilled thank you're with you. us on this historic day where the Prime Minister travels uh, to Belfast. Richard Haas at the Council on Foreign uh, Relations as well. Let us get to it. Brian Jacobson with us right now, Wells Fargo Asset Management uh, and Wells Capital Management with us today on the strategy out there. I love within your mathiness, the PhD from Madison and all, uh, Dr. Jacobson, the idea of risk premia. This is something that John and I talk about all the time. Define why risk premia, risk premium, the risk premium, plural John Latin, the risk premia. Ooh. Why does that matter now? <laughs> well, I think that it really matters because uh, you know risk premia. It just refers to what are those compensations for risk that investors expect over to time. get over time. If I go out two years, I need yes. a more. I need a larger risk premia out ten years. That's correct. So there's like a term risk <clears throat> premia as far as locking up your savings for a long period of time. There's a credit risk premium for uh, extending credit to entities that could possibly go bankrupt. The equity risk premium, the value premium, size premia. Right. So that's why it's the plural premia. How do you harvest these things efficiently? Uh, and we actually think that one of the, the beautiful things about taking that risk premia perspective is that you can get a better diversified portfolio. Instead of thinking just in the confines of a long only strategy, think about whether or not you can implement some long short using futures contracts mm -hmm. in order to try to harvest these to get uncorrelated or low correlation returns to your core portfolio. This conversation sounds like the real yield. You, you started it. I'm, I know. I started <laughs> you, I mean, it. you started this conversation. Well, if you want a window into this, see Pharaoh's property Friday on television. So, Brian, so let's talk about how difficult it is to have a balanced portfolio amid the price action that we've had through 19 so far. A lot of people may describe the price action of 2019 as, as risk on. Now, classic risk on that you and I know, Brian, is when risk assets rally and haven assets sell off. They're softer. That hasn't happened through 2019. In fact, treasuries have been resilient. Gold has rallied. The Japanese yen has been resilient as well. And I think a concern that HSBC and Goldman and others have written about quite recently is what is your diversifying asset group if we do get a return to the volatility of December? Where is your buffer coming from? Yeah, and that's actually one of the reasons why we like taking that risk premium view is because if you do think about the risk assets in your traditional risk off assets, when they move up in tandem or down in tandem, where's the diversification coming from? But then I also have to point out, even in a long only context, if you take that time perspective, that it might just require patience to really play out. So over short periods of time, uh, three months, six months, even a year, you can oftentimes see these correlations be a lot higher than what you would expect to see play out over three years. So I think one of the lessons that I learned from Tom over the years by listening to him is that some of the cardinal rules of successful investing is diversification, but then also patience. You have to w be patient enough to allow diversification to work itself out. But in these times when you do see all assets effectively moving up together in tandem, 
It does make you wonder about the sustainability of these moves higher. It's one of the reasons on the multi-asset solutions team in some of our portfolios, we've uh, trimmed a little bit of our equity exposure. We had an overweight uh, in, in December with the drubbing that we got in December, viewing that as being somewhat overdone on fears of recession. Now that those recession risks have receded, we thought we would get a decent rally. Uh, and, but now that the S&P 500 has gotten up towards 2,700, surpassed that a little bit, we've taken a little bit of that over weight off. See, Tom, I'm hearing much, much more of this from, from people on the buy side, especially. We've Agreed. had a big, a big move through 19, <clears throat> and the debate is whether you want to fade some of the strength, sell into some of the rallies. And I keep hearing it more and more. I've heard it from PGM. I'm now hearing it from Wells Fargo. Well, I, I get the idea that we've, I mean, I haven't even looked, folks. I've been so busy worrying about Tom Brady's, what he's going to wear for the parade uh, today. The Dow, I got, I got year, one, wait, that's 1% year. I've done this before. Hold on. 3.67% one-year return on the Dow right now. And, you know, I, I, you know we're, we're getting back from the carnage of last year. That's all there is to it. I think there is a lot to be said for the fact that this was a bit of a recovery from uh, in the market overdoing it on the downside, which is why we still remain slightly overweight with equities in a lot of our core portfolios. It's just we've trimmed that overweight with this rebound yeah. that we've had. Year to date, 8 0.2%. I mean, go to cash it's and a, go home. It's a big is game. that what you do? But go Brian, to cash what, and go home? what has changed through December and January? Just speaking to the fundamentals, what I see is a massive shift in sentiment. The actual underlying economy here in the United States has remained pretty solid through December through January. But the perception was that the economy was weakening. Going into December, the fear was that the Fed was going to be making a mistake by continuing to hike. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the economy was rolling over. The yield curve was flattening, so people were afraid of recession. Those fears are beginning to fade a bit. A lot of it has to deal with the, the Fed, yeah. Fed pivot. Uh, we're going to let you go to television uh, right now, but I, I just want to know of the emotion I just said. I got a gift. I'm up 8% in five weeks. Why don't I just go to cash and say thank you for the year? Well, we don't do that, do we? <laughs> no, no, I, 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 it is, but it's also because the fact is that you were down a lot more than that uh, in December. And so, so the rebound there, and yeah. uh, what are the fundamentals? They're pointing towards continued earnings growth, and uh, we okay. think that you could still get decent single-digit gains from here. Dr. Jacobson, thank you so much. Brian, this thank you. Fargo Asset Management. Now we speak to one of the most interesting feeds on Twitter. They love him. They hate him. They go back and forth. Another straw man argument, fallacy. Douglas Cass joins us. Seabreeze partners with a nodding acquaintance with the street going back at least to Kidder Peabody. For those of you younger, that's a venerable firm like the venerable Cass from another time and place. Doug, let's talk stocks here. But first, how are you positioned this morning and are you selling into this Dow strength? Well, we covered uh, most. We actually covered all our shorts um, uh, back uh, leading up to the Christmas Eve low, and went long, and began to scale out quite quickly, uh, probably in a matter of two weeks. And I've begun to reshort uh, the market. I think we're we're not Tom quite back to the euphoria of late January yeah. 2018 or the middle of September of last year, but we're definitely back 
into the bull market and complacency. Yeah. You know, I was listening to my buddy Jim Paulson in the in in the other segment, I, and I love Jim. Um, he thinks in second level terms and outside of the envelope. The irony is that I'm bearish with a similar macro view as his. And I, what I would say to Jim, if he's listening, I too am concerned that uh, S&P earnings will come in flat to down in 2019. But I can't see how um, the markets return to the old highs. To do so, we need valuations to expand. Now, I recognize that there has been some pivot in monetary policy, but um, uh, and we're having a little yeah. liquidity-fueled market rally over the last three weeks. Uh, but I don't think it can last yeah. if we detach from the yeah. real economy. That dog you hear barking in the background is uh, Doug's dog, Tom Brady. Paul, why don't you uh, <laughs> jump in here? So I Doug hate Brady. I hated, hated that game. It was, it was I think painful. It was, you know, something Tom was almost as if both teams realized the winner was going to be the go to the White House after the win. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw that light humor out on Twitter, Mr. Cass. Let's talk Thank stocks. You. Paul Sweeney, jump yeah, in here. Yeah, let's talk stocks. One of the things we're seeing in the earnings this season that, you know, some of these big growth companies are not shy about stepping up their spending, their investments, even in what might be a slowing economy. So we've had Amazon uh, talk about higher spending. We've had... Uh, Google last night talked about higher spending. We might even have Disney uh, tonight after the close. What does that mean to you and, and what might be a slowing economy? How do you think stocks perform, uh, even if they are investing in what are perceived to be good growth businesses? Well, my, uh, brace, my basic concept or precept is, as you know, because I sent you a piece I wrote this morning on, on uh, Real Money Pro, is that when the spending, when the spend line ramps up, for whatever reason, whether it's plant equipment, R&D, uh, compliance costs, headcount, head adding new business lines, as Google is doing, uh, the share price and free cash flow usually stumble. Um, as you said, it started with Amazon, Amazon last week. The hit parade of higher expenses occurred and the stock got slammed. Then last night, uh, there was an interesting trade opportunity because I saw that cap spend build up and the reduction in free cash flow, and I actually shorted some Google stock at 11.58. It was up $20 on top of the uh, regular trading session gain, only to fall about 40, uh, about 45 or 55 points um, a couple minutes later when people analyzed the results more closely. Um, so, so I, I think that's that's a problem. In the case of Google. Um, um, They've, they, I, I think their cash position is around 109 billion. Exactly. They've only, they've only spent three or four billion on acquisitions. The rest has been through R and D, and so far we haven't seen much of it. And I'm afraid, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Disney. I think Tom just a second yeah, ago. Yeah, Paul mentioned it. I'm afraid in the case of Disney, we're going to see very much the situation where it's going to become clear that the ad uh, spend both in the fourth quarter and, but more right. importantly, in the next two or three years for the streaming project is going to really damper okay. the least squared but, earnings but Doug, growth rate is, of the company. Okay, this is really this is really important, folks. You're least squared there. Cass is trying to impress us with his linear regression. Doug, there's, there's people that deploy free cash flow and, you know, they burn it. They're like up in the, you know, the food court burning up paper. And there's others, there's a purpose to it. Do you partition these stocks that are spending oodles of money 
into those that have a hope of return and those that do not? Or are you just agnostic? You don't like anybody that spends a lot of CapEx. Um, I like it when I can see the fruits of that labor. You sound like Mario Gabelli would say exactly. the same thing, Google, We haven't seen it yet. Disney, we're not going to see it for many years because as it embraces the um, – it's basically, excuse the pun, but it's trying to build a better mousetrap as they embrace the next the Netflix strategy. Um, right. So I would be wary of Disney. I want to get this in, Doug Cass, before we come back and talk some theory and, and all that. Twitter, you made a big splash last year with Twitter. You were a pinata out on Twitter uh, on it all. Twitter has value. Does it still have value? Should Google or the others buy Twitter? Twitter is my largest uh, equity position. Well, that says vibes. Stocks so, up 18%. Who, who is, well, you know, it's the only reason Cass is talking to us. Right. But, but who is the most likely acquirer of Twitter? Who needs it the most? I have long thought that uh, Google will, would acquire both of the Dorsey companies, Square and Twitter. Okay. If you think their of their failure in payments and in social right. media, it makes a great deal of sense. Doug Cass with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.